Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, it reads like this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Have you ever heard of escape rooms? Some of you might have, an escape room. I think there's a place in the, in the mall that what you could do is you get with a group of friends and family, and, and you go in... And you go into a room, and they're always they're different themes. Like it could be a jail cell or a laboratory or a doctor's office or some such thing. And you pay money, and they put you in this room, and you have to solve puzzles to figure out how to get out the room. So you find a scrap of paper with a number on it, and that gives you a combination to open a safe. And in the safe is a key which opens a cupboard which has the um, doohickey which opens the door. Okay, it's, it's much more complicated than I'm making it sound. Um, and so the idea here is you figure out all the puzzles, and then you get out of uh, the room. And you, yay, we got out of the room. Certain time limit. So just hypothetically, stay with me here, because uh, some of you think this room is an escape room. Um, <laughs> there's no getting out. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, you get with a group of friends, group of family, and you go in, you pay the fee, you got 30 minutes, they put you in the room, and you start working. And the normal thing happens in these escape rooms. There's a lot of laughter, everybody's having a good time, maybe a little bit of arguing over who's right and who's awesome and who's not, and all these kinds of things. But this particular day, you and this group, you just nail it. You're just puzzle after puzzle after puzzle. There is no riddle that's too difficult. There's no trivia question somebody doesn't know. There's no clue that's too vague. You just nail it. Boom, 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 boom. Puzzle's done. And you're still in the room. Like, well, we must have missed something. I don't know what's going on. Why is the door not opening? Finally, 30 minutes goes by, and the, the attendant comes in and lets you out. And you say, yeah, well, we don't know what's going on here. I mean, we did all the things, and, but we didn't figure out how to get out. Did we miss something? Or did you forget to put something in the room? He goes, oh, no, this one, there's no escape. I'm sorry? Yeah, this particular one, you can figure out all the puzzles and you're still stuck. It's just the no escape room. Actually, we should call it that, but we don't. Wouldn't you be kind of annoyed? What are you talking about? I I paid you money to try and get out of a room. You put me in a room I can't get out of. That doesn't seem right. You'd you'd ask for a refund. What does this have to do with anything, Greg? Here's the thing. We find ourselves in a similar predicament. We're in a room we can't get out of. Let me explain. Here's where we're at in the book of Romans so far. The book of Romans tells us that we, chapter 1, were made by God and we are designed to worship. We are, by nature, worshipers. In fact, we were designed by God in His image to worship Him and depend on Him. But we rebelled against God, and so now Romans 1 tells us We are still worshipers. 
We just worship literally anything and everything except God. We worship anything and everything other than God. And what the Bible calls that is idolatry, is we set our hopes and our, our, our uh, hopes of deliverance, our hopes of meaning and significance in other things. And what the Bible calls that is idolatry. And where that leads is not merely false worship, although it does do that. The Bible says idolatry, when we set our hopes on something other than God, worship something other than God, by our nature, we will then do what we desire, which means we will pursue the appetites of our flesh. So idolatry is us worshiping something other than God, and sinful expression flows out of that. Hatred and envy and greed and um, violence and sexual sins of all sorts. All of these things flow out of uh, abandoning our worship of God. So here's what happens, and this happens, I think, to everyone. It's better if it happens sooner rather than later, but some people, it seems like it doesn't happen at all. We pursue these things. So we worship something other than God, and we pursue the appetites of our flesh, and we chase down money because that makes us seem like we're safe, and we chase down uh, meaningful relationships because it means makes us feel like we have value, and we, we chase down uh, pleasures of all sorts because that makes us uh, feel good. But all of these things, over time, lose their interest. Their, their spice, their zing, their buzz, whatever it might be. Anything over time, whether it be money, whether it be relationships or sex or stuff, whatever it might be, over time it loses its punch and it starts to fade a little bit. And so what we do is we just chase the next thing. So we chase entertainment. We chase travel. Some people even chase charity and doing good in this same thing. And so what we do is we're, it's a hunt for significance, and we will do this in any possible manner other than worshiping God. And so we chase these things, and these things leave us feeling a little bit empty. And, we, and not a little bit, over time, a lot of it empty. And, and we go, well, what, what matters? And so then some of us get to this point, a certain point in our life, my whole life has been about pursuing my own appetites, and many of those appetites aren't so great. Uh, not only are they unhealthy, perhaps they're shameful. So a lot of us live with uh, regret and guilt and shame. And please don't ask me about the 10 years of here to here. Please don't ask me about those years. There's no stories in there I want to tell. I want to bring back those memories. And so all of this leads, well, I need to, this is a problem. I need to fix this. And so what we do is we go to religion. Say, you know what? If I've been being bad, maybe I ought to try on being being good. So this is where people are going in Romans 3, 1 through 20. They have gone into the escape room of religion to try and figure out how to get out of this quandary. Life feels empty. The pleasures no longer are pleasurable. And I feel guilt and shame. And I need to figure out how to get out of this. So I'm going to figure out all the puzzles of religion, all the things I'm supposed to do, all the things I'm not supposed to do. And listen, you can do all the things. What happens at the end? It's the no escape room. There's no getting out of that. It's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. There is no way out. That's the title of our message today. There's no way out. And we're going to look at how we approach God in relation to our worship problem, recognizing two primary ways that people pursue to deal with this problem. And I want us to understand these don't get us out of the problem. And then, of course, we're going to look at the right way to do it. So verses 1 through 8, there's no way out. And you can't talk your way out of the problem. There is no way out. You can't talk your way out of 
the problem. So what happens in verses 1 through 8 of Romans chapter 3 is the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, creates somewhat of a hypothetical argument, uh, sort of a shadow boxing with somebody probably he has in mind that he's had a conversation in this uh, like this before. And he's going to cover several questions that have been brought to the Apostle Paul, and he's going to show how these assumptions on how to deal with this problem don't actually deal with the, the problem. You can't talk your way uh, out of it. Let me read verses 1 through 8 as a way of catching us up. What advantage has the Jew? What value of circumcision? Verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, excuse me, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if, you are un, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Verse 6, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. There's no way out. You can't talk your way out of it. And Paul here uh, demonstrates an, uh, an argument that is made to try to justify what I'm doing may be wrong, but that's okay. You can't talk your way out of it. Long time ago, 20 some years ago, my wife and I, we lived up in the Portland area, city of Sherwood, Oregon. Call that the Southwest. If you're in the Portland area, near Newburgh, if you're familiar with this particular area, nice place to be from. And, or place to live. We lived there about three years. At the time, I had a 1984 two-wheel drive Toyota pickup long bed. It was a great truck. Uh, it never worked, but it was a great truck. The tailgate, so old school, it didn't have a handle. It had two little latches on the end. You remember those? I mean, that was, it never broke. Those things never broke. Everything else did. I kept a quart of oil behind the seat so that when the oil light came on, I could pull over and top it off. I kept a spare alternator in the garage because it would fail about every nine months. I wouldn't have to go buy a new one, swap it out, drive straight to the parts store, buy a new alternator, put it on the shelf for the next time I needed it. This was the truck I drove. This truck also had a broken tail light. I got pulled over. I can't even count how many times I got pulled over by Sherwood police for this broken tail light. At some point in my thinking about this, I decided I will never replace that tail light until I'm given a ticket. I want to see how long I can go with this broken taillight without getting a ticket. And I also decided, as a part of the game, because it's a game I was going to play, you say, why are you playing this game? We were broke. We couldn't afford to think about having fun. And so this was my entertainment. Just get pulled over by the police and talk my way out of it. Hey, don't judge me. They pull over and I, there's got to be a rule. I can't lie to the guy. Do you know you have a broken taillight out? Left or right? That's not a lie, it's a question. <laughs> Left one, sir. I should get that fixed. Yeah, that's right, sir. So if you get that fixed, it's your first opportunity. Thank you, sir. Have a good evening. Now if I would get I never replaced the taillight. When I sold the truck, I had a broken taillight. I had to tell the person who was buying it, got a broken taillight. I've, I have principles that tell me I will never fix the light, so if you want to buy the truck, you have fixed taillight on your own. 
So this was something I I could talk my way out of this. The problem is, not that I was being ridiculous about talking my way out of a ticket. The problem is that people think they can do this on the day they stand before the Lord. Say, you know what? We can have a little conversation. We can clear up any misunderstandings, and we can get this hashed out. I can uh, convince, cajole, think through all the issues, and you know what? I think I've got uh, the wits, the wherewithal to stand before the Lord. I think it'll be good and I'll get in. And there's no escape in that way. You can't talk your way out of it. There is no argument. God is always just. God is always holy. God is always righteous and loving and merciful. And in all of his character traits, all of those things will come to bear when we stand before him. The question is, are we righteous or not? There is no talking our way out of it. There is no arguing our way out of it. Let's begin in verses one and two. What advantage does the Jew have? What advantage is there in circumcision? And he says, there is great advantage. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. The advantage is the Jews were made, what was made known to the Jews was the nature of God because they were recipients of the law. They were recipients of Moses. They were recipients of the prophets and the writings. Everything we think of as the Old Testament. God made himself known to them through his revealed word. And this is a great advantage. Two guys with a broken leg, one has an x-ray, one doesn't. The person with the x-ray has the great advantage because they know the proper course of treatment. The one without the x-ray, he's, he's just left guessing on what needs to be done. However, as we talked about last week, the x-ray doesn't fix the broken leg. It's just an advantage to know what needs to be done with some level of specificity. And so he says there is great advantage because to the Jews, God has made himself known by the law. When we read the Old Testament, we should realize we're reading about what God is like. It, it is telling us God is holy and God is just and he's loving and he is and he is kind. But the law does not redeem us. The law just reveals our need for salvation because of the condition of our hearts. And so there's great advantage to having received the law because it reveals what's going on inside of us. Uh, not having the truth of God's word is a great disadvantage because we are left uh, in some ways guessing. Let's read verses three and four. Here's where the arguing starts with the legal attorney. What if some were unfaithful? Was anybody in the Old Testament unfaithful? On which page of the Old Testament were there unfaithful people? All of them. Yeah, you've read it. Just close your eyes, open a page, you're going to find an unfaithful person. So this attorney, this person arguing, this hypothetical argument that Paul is bringing up, probably because he's had this conversation before, is saying, well, weren't there unfaithful people in the Old Testament? Answer, yes, there was many, many unfaithful people. So does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, he says in verse 4, let God be true and everyone else a liar that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And so what the person is arguing is God has made himself known to the people of Israel through Moses and the prophets and the writings, and Israel was still unfaithful. So therefore, the problem is with who? God, obviously, because he doesn't know what he's doing. If he knew what he was doing, he could make himself known to people and they would prove to be what? Faithful. And this is a ridiculous argument, but this is the argument nonetheless. They're saying, 
listen, if God were so good, he would make himself known in such a way that people would be faithful to him. So therefore, since the law didn't work, therefore, it's not that we are unfaithful. It's that God is unfaithful. That's the argument here. Here's his response. It's from Psalm 51 in verse 4. He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So who wrote Psalm 51? King David did. When did he write Psalm 51? It was in response to being confronted by Nathan the prophet because of his sin with Bathsheba. And David writes this. Nathan the prophet comes to David and says, you are the man. And David says, I have sinned before God. And here's part of that psalm. That God might be justified, that God might prevail when you are judged. Why didn't David write this psalm? Dear God, why didn't you have Bathsheba have a bathtub inside her house instead of on the roof? Not only are there structural issues, that much water on a roof of a clay house, but obviously she shouldn't be bathing publicly. The issue actually is in Bathsheba's immodesty. You could have written that one. We've all made that argument before, haven't we? Or David said, oh, Lord, why did you have me walk? At you? Lord, you could, you've directed my footsteps throughout my entire life. Why did you allow me to walk out on my roof that morning? Why didn't you convince my heart to go off to war like I was supposed to? God, why didn't you send somebody to intervene? Nathan the prophet showing up after the fact. I've got an idea, God. Send Nathan the prophet before the fact. These all seem like perfectly reasonable ideas. And all of these things put the blame for David's sin on who? God. If God was really God, then he can keep me from doing the bad stuff I do. But David doesn't make that argument. David makes this argument. I want God to be justified by his words. I want God to prevail when judging because he is God. I am not. He is righteous. I am not. Is our sin in any way, shape, or form God's fault? And the answer, according to the scripture in the Old Testament especially, absolutely not. The result of our sin is our desire to worship anything other than God himself. We want to worship our money. We want to worship our, the people in our lives. We want to worship the pleasurable things we enjoy. We want to worship all kinds of things. And in abandoning God as our source of hope and God as the one we ought to be dependent on, we have decided, I have pursued my own ways, which led to sin, and it's God's fault. And you're not going to talk your way out of it. That dog's not going to hunt. That's not going to fly. Let's keep going with this ludicrous argument that we all make, I should say, before I <laughs> that we all make. Here we go. Verse 5. You ready for 5 and 6? Are you, are you ready? Come on, stay with me. It's, it's warm in here. It's getting late. Let's do this. All right. But if unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Talking in human ways. Verse 6. By no means. So if I sin and I make God look righteous then my sin actually is good because it makes God look good. I call this the Washington Generals argument. Who knows who the Washington Generals are? Please, you got to know. Okay, we got it. Carmine knows. Okay, Pat knows. Okay, first service, total blank, and I almost abandoned the illustration. <laughs> and I totally judge the first service for this. How can you know? Washington Generals is the team the Globetrotters played against. Washington, tell me you know who the Harlem Globetrotters are. Oh, Lord have mercy. Okay. So the argument is this. 
the, the, the worse the Washington generals play, the better the Harlem Globetrotters work, look, so therefore it's good that the Washington generals are terrible so that Curly can spin the ball on his finger and somebody can throw a bucket of glitter into the crowd. That's what happens in the show if you haven't seen it. And this is our argument. I'm the Washington generals of religious people. I'm terrible. So therefore, God looks fantastic. So therefore, I should not ju- be judged for being in my sin. And the answer is, are you serious? That's, that, he says, by no means. God looks good when we are bad. No, we are rightly seen as unrighteous and unjust. This is merely a shallow and hollow, and empty means to try and convince myself God actually wants me to sin because it makes him look good. Let's just call a spade a spade. You just want to do your sin stuff. This has nothing to do with God. In fact, his response is very telling. He says, your condemnation is just. To try and argue that sin not only is authorized by God, but it makes God look good, the simple theological response to that is, your judgment is appropriate. To try and convince yourself that doing the things that are opposite of God's nature as a means of glorifying God's nature is the height of self-deception. If you want God to let you do what you want, you need to make your own God. And that's been the problem the whole time. If you want God to let you do whatever you want, you need to make your own God who lets you do whatever you want. That's been the whole problem from Romans chapter 1. We create a God who lets us do whatever we want, and it's not God. It's idolatry, and that leads to all kinds of sinful expressions and behaviors. And then we can't figure out why we're empty. And then when God shows up, we say, well, the reason I did those things was to make you look good. And he says, you are condemned, and it's appropriate. For you to be condemned. You're trying to make a religious argument for living in your own way. There's no way out. You can't talk your way out. In our heart, we have two opportunities here. You have two people, two people, I don't know what that is, two people you can put to work for you. One is your inner attorney. You've got a lawyer you can hire. And you can hire this lawyer, and what it means is then when you do something wrong, and that happens generally when you're awake and sometimes even when you're asleep, you then hire that attorney to explain why that's okay. No, God can't judge me because everybody does it. No, God can't judge me because it makes him look good. No, God can't judge me because I didn't know any better. Nobody told me it was wrong. No, God can't judge me because, A, whatever your argument is today. And you can hire that attorney. That attorney is lousy. That attorney won't save you. The other option is to fire your attorney and take on board an intercessor. The difference between an attorney and an intercessor is this. An attorney explains why what you did was right and you never do anything wrong. An intercessor, you go to that person and said, I got to be honest with you. I totally blew it. Like the rap sheet is actually accurate. And the intercessor, instead of arguing it that you're right, the intercessor says, Oh, yeah, you're, you're as bad as you think. In fact, you're actually much worse than you could possibly imagine. The difference with the intercessor is he says, I will pay it. I will pay the debt. And I will give you life through my resurrection. And I will stand at the right hand of the Father making 
intercession for you. To, to have an intercessor, we don't plead innocence, we plead guilty. You say, guilty as charged, I need somebody not to tell me I'm okay, but, but somebody to tell me they can make me okay because they were good. And that's the difference between Jesus and an internal attorney. The problem is with our internal lawyer always trying to justify how we think, how we act, how we're motivated, it's hard to have an intercessor if we're never wrong. It's hard to plead guilty if I think everything I've done is right. And what's great about making a God of my own choosing is it always tells me I'm okay. The problem is that God cannot save me. We can't argue our way out of judgment. Okay, there's no way out. You can't talk your way out. Some of you aren't good at talking your way out, but you're good at working. So the next section is you also can't work your way out. You can't work your way out. These are verses 9 through uh, 20. The purpose of the law, look at the purpose of the law down in verse 20. Excuse me, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. So the law is diagnostic, just like a medical diagnostic test, either for cancer or for a fracture. The law merely tells us what is. It doesn't fix what uh, is. And so we take the law and what we think is, it tells us what ought to be. And so we think if we obey the terms of the law, therefore we will be okay. But that's not what the purpose of the law is. The law fixes nothing. The law just merely reveals what is true of us. And so the question then becomes, well, how then do we fix the problem? The law reveals that we are lost and dead in our sin. How then do we fix the problem? And and the book of Romans is going to explain this. But for today, we're going to take a rabbit trail over to John chapter 4. So if you want to, you can turn to John chapter 4. I'm going to just summarize the story over the next three hours. Jesus is making his way through Samaria. That's not the right response. What? That's what he's supposed to say. Jesus is making his way. What is he doing in Samaria? That's nuts. Who would ever walk through there? Jesus is making his way through Samaria, and it turns out he got tired. He also got thirsty. How do we know he was thirsty? He sat down at a well. I'm just doing the math. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired. This is verse 6. He sat down by the well. It's about the sixth hour, and a woman came out to draw water from the well at the sixth hour. And you're doing this. What? Why would she come out then? Because nobody else is coming out then. Why? Wait for it. The story's developing. Let it marinate. Jesus said to this woman, Hey, can I get a drink of water? I'm kind of thirsty. I'm tired from my journey through Samaria. And uh, the disciples had gone away to buy food because that's really, if you read the Gospels, that's really all they were worried about. (laughs) And she goes, I'm sorry, you're Jewish. You're a rabbi. You're a dude. I'm a woman. I'm a Samaritan. You're not supposed to talk to me. You're not even supposed to ask water for me. And heaven forbid, you should not be drinking water from anything I have touched. She doesn't say that, but this is all known. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus says, listen, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who was asking you for water, you wouldn't be arguing with me. You'd be asking me for water. And she decides to argue religion with him, which is normally what we do. She said, what, are you greater than Jacob? What's the answer to that? Yes creator, sustainer of the entire universe. Yeah, a little bit better than Jacob. Read. (laughs) Yeah, he's not a great guy. But he doesn't say that. Jesus is much nicer than we are. Are you better than Jacob? Here's Jesus' response. Listen, 
Whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So now he's addressing the heart issue. You have an issue in your heart of death, and you need your heart to be made alive. And Jesus says this, more than that, I will not only make you alive, I will make you a source of life, a spring of living water flowing up from inside of you. So now he's getting at her core. I want to change what's in you and turn it into living water. And here's her response. You know, I like some of that water because then I won't have to be thirsty anymore and I won't have to come to this well to draw water anymore. Why wouldn't she want to come to the well to draw water? That's work, I suppose. Everybody's drawing water. That's not a big deal. That's not a... When is she coming to draw water? When nobody's around. If she didn't have to come out to draw water, it would be one less time in her life she would have to face the people in her life that she's currently avoiding by coming out to draw water when nobody's around. And so she likes the idea of living water that keeps her from having to come out of her house one more time. And Jesus goes for it, doesn't he? I love this. This doesn't give you permission to ask questions like this unless you are Jesus. Why don't you go get your husband? And she's played my game with the police before. She's like, well, I can't lie to the guy. What can I say? Well, I don't have a husband. True-ish. She's telling the truth. She's trying to get around it. She's trying to dodge it. Jesus goes for it. You're right. You don't have a husband. The dude you're with, not your husband. And the previous five husbands, you're not with them anymore. He just grabs the thing in her heart, pulls it out, drops it on the table, and now they've got to look at it. What are we going to do about this? And now they're staring at it. And what's amazing about this passage is he not once quotes to her the Ten Commandments. Ma'am, have you not read? Thou shalt not envy your neighbor or your neighbor's donkey or your neighbor's F-250 or your neighbor's spouse. Have you not read? Thou shalt not commit adultery. He just pulls that out and drops it. And this is what he says to her. Look at in verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Incredibly, he doesn't call her to stop sinning. He assumes that because he calls her to proper worship. Stop worshiping a God you have created. Instead, worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He knows people who are worshiping God will turn from their old gods. He is calling her to right worship. And he's calling her to living water. She says, listen, when the Messiah comes... He'll take care of all this. And he said, you're talking to him. That's me. What did the woman do? This is where we know what happened. Verse 28. May not be on the screen. Probably isn't. Because I changed stuff. The woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see the man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can you believe this? This woman, what was she doing at the beginning of the chapter? coming to the well so she wouldn't have to see people and feel shame for what she knew was behavior that was shameful. 
And now at the end of the story, she's going and telling people about her shameful past. Why can she do that? Because she is now a spring of living water. Because something has changed in her. The shame and guilt is gone. When she was avoiding these people at the top, it's because the shame and guilt identified her. But now having encountered the Messiah by faith, a spring of living water has showed up there. And she goes, this guy told me everything we've ever done. They could have responded this way. We know everything you've ever done. You just live right over there. Kind of hard to keep it secret. She's not ashamed of it anymore because it has been made, it's been made new. And now coming out of her is life. And she takes all of these people to to him, and they all, at the end, say this, we believed at first because of what you said, but now we believe because of what he has said. The solution to her problem was not a better understanding of the law or a better application of the law. The solution to her problem was living water applied to her heart by faith. The work of the Messiah to change her from the Inside, he never once told her to move out from her not current husband. Why didn't he do that? Doesn't that seem a little strange to you? Wouldn't, if you were leading this woman to the Lord, after she prayed the sinner's prayer at the end, wouldn't the next statement be, we need to get you your own place? But wouldn't that be your next thing? Jesus doesn't need to because he knows if someone is worshiping in spirit and in truth, they are by nature of their worship going to chase down the holiness of God. They don't need a law to tell them to do it. And the law hasn't worked so far anyway. She now has living water in her. And so therefore he knows she's going to pursue right worship and holiness and righteousness. Let's go back to Romans chapter three, beginning in verse nine or 10 ish. I can't remember. Let me turn there. Romans chapter 3. Let me read it. Quotes from a number of different psalms. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. This is verse 10. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of the peace they haven't known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. This is a description of the human heart. It doesn't mean every person has sinned in all the ways. Some people sin in a variety of ways. Others do not. But it means the condition of the human heart is not righteous. And fundamentally, we need this kind of heart swapped out for a heart of life. And so this is what it says in verse 19, that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, so that no one would be able to argue, all would be held accountable to God. Because the law is true and good and righteous, it reveals the condition of the heart. And that means verses 10 through 18 apply to every human person. So what is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to bring to light our need of salvation. But look what it says in verse 20. No human being will be justified in his sight because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law makes known our sin and we say, I need a Messiah. So Jesus, when he told the woman to go get her husband, he was operating and showing what the law did, reveals sin. The woman then responded in faith to the Messiah. The Messiah redeemed her, not the law. And it was by faith. There's no way out. You can't talk your way out and you can't work your way out. It's by faith alone. 
Right. Three things to just make note of by way of um, maybe application as we wrap this up. No way out. Can't talk your way out. You can't work your way out. Uh, there's some of us, and I think this is becoming more and more prevalent in our culture and especially in the church, who say, you know what? Sin is no big deal. God is my homie. We're pretty tight. I wear a cross on my necklace or I've got a cross tattooed on my left calf or whatever it might be. And so therefore, I'm going to stand before him and, you know, we'll, we'll work it out. We're good. Pretty tight. We're, we're, I think we'll be able to square it up then. Guess what? You need to read your Bible. You don't know God very well. He is holy and he is just and he is righteous. He is loving and he is gracious and merciful and he is all of these things all of the time. But you better make sure you know God before you decide you can stand before and work it out with your homie. You don't know God very well if that's how you think this is working. You can't talk your way out of it. You have to be made righteous. Some of us might think this way. You know what? I'm pretty good. I'm not terrible. I'm pretty good. And so, and so therefore, I think I'm going to be okay. And then some of us as Christians even think the same way. You know what? Like, you know, I was saved, but you know what? I've got some pet sins, but that's not too big a deal. Look up with me over at Galatians 3.23. Galatians 3.23. Just real quick. And you know when I say real quick, that's meaningless. Galatians 3.2 says this. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? That's a good question, Christians. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by faith? Faith. Good answer. Verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having been saved by the Spirit, are you going to now be a good Christian by your effort? How's that working out? We need to recognize as believers, we are saved by faith. We live the Christian life by faith, and we will go on to glory by faith. You don't get saved by faith and live the Christian life by good works. The law had no ability to save you. The law also has no ability to make you like Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit to make you like Jesus. The life of the Christian life is a life of Faith, where we wake up in the morning again, having struggled with the same sin again, and we pray out and cry out to the Lord, my God, who will save me from this body of flesh, I need your redemption today. I need you, God, to do whatever you need to do in these moments that I might say no to sin and yes to righteousness. It's by faith. Okay, last thing, and then we'll close with this. A lot of us, in, I, I might say this in the church, I only say this because of uh, lived almost my entire life in the church. So I don't want you to think I'm judging you. I'm judging the people in the row behind you. We tend to be really, really, under, especially Baptists, we're really, really gracious about the sin in our life. We understand, you know, I still struggle, but the Lord is gracious. And then the guy next to us blows it in a way we wouldn't think of blowing it. And we're like, oh my goodness, that's disgusting. So what we tend to do, we, be, we tend to be really, really good at applying grace to our own heart and maybe to, the, to our, our people, our friend, friends and family. But this person over here who sins in ways that I, I don't think I would ever struggle with or, or comes from a different place than I do, well, as soon as I see them sinning, I'm going to just unload a barrel of law on them. Good Christians don't. 
whatever that is for you. When we all have our pet, good Christian don't sin. And usually there are sins we don't struggle with. So my suggestion is, if the law doesn't help me get closer to Jesus, it's not going to help the person next to me get closer to Christ. And there might be room for more grace in the community of the believers. There's no way out. You can't talk your way out. You can't work your way out. It's by faith alone.